Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay, come on and Welcome everyone to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe and America's leading cultural critic. This is our weekly show where we talk about the worlds of books and film and streaming TV. We have so many great articles on the site this week. And this week on the show, we're going to highlight just a few of them. We could highlight all of them, but then we'd have to do three episodes. And I don't know that our audio engineer would be thrilled with me saying, we're going to do three episodes of the podcast this week. Instead, we're just going to do one. We're going to talk to Book and Film Globe contributor Jake Harris about goings on at Netflix. It is showing some viewership loss and some earnings loss. And we're also going to talk about a recent controversy that erupted around Steve Martin's King Tut song from 1978. Yes, we live in a world where songs from 1978 can become cultural touchstones on Twitter. It's absurd, but it's relevant, and we're going to talk about it. But first, we're going to talk to Book and Film Globe television critic Matthew Ehrlich about The Flight Attendant, which is airing its second season on HBO Max right now and certainly has its fans. And we're going to fly right over there and talk to Matthew in just a second. Come fly with me. Let's fly. Let's fly away. The actress Kaylee Cuoco was kind of a second banana on The Big Bang Theory, although she was her character was extremely popular. But now she's taking center stage in an HBO Max comedy drama called The Flight Attendant, and it has its fans and its adherents. And Matthew Ehrlich, our TV critic, is one of them. Hello, Matthew. Hey, Neil. How are you? I am doing well, thanks. Uh, so we have a piece by you up this week about The Flight Attendant. And, you know, this isn't a show... I mean, it's not like it wasn't on my radar. Everything is on, on my radar, my flight radar, as it were, because, you know, I'm, I'm a pop culture editor and all. But I, it's not like a show I was watching. But you, you were uh, t- talking about this on your social media and you have you have sort of an obsession with this show. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, basically what I realize now is that during COVID, when this show debuted, essentially uh, Cassie, uh, Kaylee Cuoco's character, was doing a lot of things that we were not doing at the time. She was traveling, for one thing. You know, as a stewardess, she has to travel. And uh, she's going to nightclubs. She's drinking. She's having sex with strange men. And I think to a lot of us uh, watching from home, it was like, oh, you know, it was fantasy. It was escapism, uh, wish fulfillment as well. And now, of course, we're all doing all those things again. Exactly, Yes. <laughs> So, but you uh, you seem to think the show hasn't really lost much of its edge, even though it's got kind of a different vibe to it in the second season. Um, yeah, I mean, the thing is, it's kind of like, what if they made a sequel to North by Northwest? You know, and I'm not, I don't mean Hitchcockian, like to say that this is like a brilliant, you know, series and Francois Truffaut would write about it. But it's got that that sense of, you know, Hitchcock loved America and when you watch a Hitchcock movie, you're in this you're in this like really wonderful world where everyone is dressed beautifully and the interiors are fantastic and you're in a really great city. And there's a lot of that going on in this in this show. We go to exotic cities. 
Um, she wears amazing clothing. There is this um, alternative universe that we seem to dwell in on this show in which the airline industry is still glamorous. She looks fabulous. All the people she works with looks fabulous. You want to fly. You know those articles you see every once in a while where they go, stop wearing sweatpants when you travel. Yeah. There was one like that in the Washington Post this week where people exactly. were like, oh, this guy was like, wear a suit. Yeah. And it's like this is that, you know, this is a world in which this these articles are being listened to and heard. Like these flights seem like, I mean, I've never been on a flight like this. I don't know if this airline exists or not. But so she, but then there's also this thing where she's, you know, a bit of a blackout drunk. She's a hot mess. And, and that's why we love her. And because she is placed within the boundaries of a murderer, um, she has a lot to answer for in terms of her own life in order to prove her own innocence. She can't really stand on the fact that she's the squeaky clean character herself. Um, and therefore, you know, very much like Cary Grant in North by Northwest as it is. And so she has to kind of prove, you know, she has to get to the bottom of why this murder happened in order to clear her name. And then in doing so, she kind of has to look at her own character. And then it sort of wraps up in season one. And then it's like, there's a season two. And it's a bit like, you know, Big Little Lies, where it's like, apparently, I've not read this novel, but it was based on a novel. So things were wrapped up then. And now there's a season two. And it's like the Peter principle of, of TV series is like, if you liked it the first time, we're going to give you more, even though you don't necessarily want more, but you'll watch. Well, this is a problem with TV shows based on novels, though, is that then suddenly the original writer's vision, oftentimes TV shows improve on novels because they're they're given time to flesh out supporting characters. They, they can, you know, they can play with certain tricks that novels can't. But when they go for a second season, suddenly you're dealing with a writer's room. Right. And a writer's room is great if it is the room that actually conceived of the show and the characters in the first place. But if you're trying to expand on that, it can off, especially if you're not consulting the original writer, it can often turn uh, really weird and cheesy. I mean, the second season of Big Little Lies was pretty bad. Right. And it's another example of, oh, we love those characters. We want to see them again. But, you know, the murder was solved, you know, and then they brought in Meryl Streep. And it was like, why, you know, why are we doing this? And yet I watched in this case, you've got uh, Kelly Cuoco's uh, flight attendant character, and she wake. Spoiler alert: she wakes up in a hotel room in Thailand next to a dead guy. Right in the first season, and then in the second season, again, which I haven't watched, but I have read your review. She <laughs> basically, because of the intrigue she was involved in and how she handled it, she becomes a CIA asset. Right. And then she's also kind of one of those CIA assets that's constantly like not following the rules. And again, no one fires her or, you know, court martials her. They just kind of put up with it because she's so cute. But they're they're You know, they tell her, you know, go tail this guy, but don't get involved. And of course, she gets involved and learns things that apparently there is someone who looks just like her, who's pretending to be her, who is committing all these crimes and she needs to get to the bottom of this right. so i i get the hitchcock this isn't the born identity you know this right. this is played for comedy and camp for the most part right yeah i mean it's interesting i don't necessarily think of it as camp um it does it's like it's like a it's like coca-cola it's really good for what it is and it knows exactly what it is and it just kind of um there's a certain integrity to this this 
this universe that this all takes place. It's very, um, it's very enjoyable and it knows exactly how serious to get and how funny to get. And that's kind of all it is. And there's something very satisfying about watching that. All right. The Flight Attendant on HBO Max airing now. Matthew, we will talk to you soon. Thank you. Driving some of the hottest cars New Yorkers ever seen. For dropping some of the hottest verses rappers ever heard. From the dope spot with the smoke block, clinging the murder. The world experienced a little bit of, well, I wouldn't call it Schadenfreude, I'd call it more um, streaming Freude. Uh, in the last week when it was announced that Netflix, for the first time in recent memory, had actually lost subscribers. And this led people to ponder is Netflix in decline as the golden age of Netflix ended? Jake Harris wrote a piece about it for us this week. Hello, Jake. Hey, how are you doing? I am well, thank you. And so, but your, you know, your conclusion was, well, the reports of Netflix, Netflix's demise may be somewhat exaggerated. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's, uh, I mean, all companies really, you know, reach this point where like you grow, 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 and then the plateau and then the decline is probably going to happen. In Netflix's case, it happened a lot later than I think a lot of people realized, especially after how the pandemic forced everyone indoors and everyone was watching streaming content and Netflix was the go-to for a lot of people. I think that people were just uh, not shocked, but, you know, a little bit happy to see it happen. I don't know, but people were definitely reveling in the fact that the big guy, the first streaming service to uh to do it and do it well is finally on decline. And I think they're just kind of in a, a growing pain area, right? Like for a while, the service was defined by what they weren't, right? Like there was no commercials on Netflix. There was no live sports. There was no live TV. Uh, and they made sure to not tie anything to a weekly release model. You could just binge everything right out the gate. Um, and for a while that really worked. Uh, but now with, uh, you know, everyone and their mom has a streaming service. It, it changed the game completely, right? Like you, right. We, we almost forget what TV was like before Netflix, before you could just sit down and binge all 10 episodes of a show in one uh, afternoon or one evening, you know? And, and it's true that like at the beginning of the pandemic in March of 2020, you know, suddenly like Netflix was all anybody had. And there were, there were a lot of other major streaming services. I mean, you had Amazon Prime and Hulu, but Hulu at that point was mostly a content aggregator for the networks. Uh, it wasn't until you know Marvel and Disney weren't really in bed in the TV area quite yet. It was just getting started, and they also the Mandalorian hadn't appeared yet. We didn't have Paramount Plus. You know there weren't a lot of these streaming services that are that have really taken off in the last couple of years. So Netflix essentially entered the pandemic with no competition. And you know what I find strange is this idea that Netflix has had no hits, which is just absurd to me. I mean, it's absurd. I mean, Squid, Squid Game was a massive international hit. Uh, Tiger King was a massive international hit. They've had a number of hugely successful programs that changed the game. Yeah, and then, you know, not to mention, you know, Stranger Things, which is finally returning uh, next month, I believe. But yeah, on top of that, most of the discussion hasn't really revolved around anything new that Netflix has. It's either what's coming to Netflix or what's leaving Netflix. A lot of the big discussion around that within the last couple of years was that Netflix was losing The Office and Friends, which were two of the biggest shows that people subscribe to it for, to Peacock and um, HBO. 
once those services realize that like, hey, we have the rights to these, we can buy them back and put them on our own services and stop paying out licensing fees to Netflix. So that also drew part of it, I think, is people just realized, hey, I can go spend my money somewhere else if the only reason I'm using Netflix for is to watch this show. I was always surprised when I saw the Netflix streaming numbers and I'm like, oh my God, all anybody does is watch reruns of The Office. Yeah, over, yeah. <laughs> over, over. It's just not, that's just not the way I operate as a viewer. Like, I generally watch something and then I throw it into the bin forever. There aren't too many shows I watch more than once, even if I love them. But but that but but Netflix was depending on that. But you're right about Stranger Things. I'm like, are you really counting Netflix out with a season four of Stranger Things? Which is you want to talk about a blockbuster show? I mean, I would just rewatch season three, and there's no way on earth that Netflix's numbers aren't going to go through the roof when that season releases. Yeah. And the, the thing though, is like, especially with like squid game and stranger things, a lot of it is, you know, really big numbers for a short amount of time, which is just the nature of the internet and the news cycle now. And then that puts pressure on you to keep looking for the next big thing over and over and over. Well, it's like movies. Yeah. Yeah. It's like movies. Stranger things is essentially a 10 hour movie that releases every two or three years. That's what squid game was. That's what the hit miniseries are. And, you know, it's not this steady sort of drip, drip of morphine that a network show is. Right. It's a hit. Yeah. And in order to kind of combat the, you know, the low times in between all those hits, uh, Reed Hastings, who's the chairman and co-CEO of Netflix, uh, once the the news that all these subscribers left and the stock price tanked, uh, he announced that. Not only is the company going to start cracking down on uh, password sharing, uh, they're also going to try to figure out how to do tiers uh, like almost every other streaming service does. So they're going to start putting up ads and uh, different uh, release models and stuff too, I believe. So the model is going back to what TV was in the first place. (laughs) That makes me very sad though, because one of the cool things about Netflix is you could go on there and it was like a video store, like a weird video store. You, You could watch like, old Jean-Claude Van Damme movies or an Argentinian cop melodrama or some various soccer documentaries or whatever, you know, it's like whatever, you know, stupid food shows from Canada, whatever kind of caught your fancy. And that was one of the things I loved about it, but I guess nothing will last forever. No, no. And now they're, they're even looking into doing uh, like video games too. They've got, um, it's mostly just like kind of click to play stuff like Bandersnatch, uh, how they did that a few years ago. Um, right now they. Bandersnatch was an interactive episode of Black Mirror, like a movie. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that in your piece. There's a game called Cat Burglar, which I haven't played, but then, you know, I'm a trivia uh, buff and they have a game called Trivia. What's it called? Trivia Quest based on the uh, Trivia Crack app. I guess you couldn't call a show Trivia Crack. And, you, you know, it's like, and I don't know if you, I don't know if you, uh, you gave Trivia Quest a try. I did. I tried that one and it was, uh, it's basically just like playing, you know, the game on your phone, except the levels are kind of segmented off into different episodes. So if you go onto a regular show and you look to kind of see what's next in the season, you can see different episodes with this, you can see different levels and each level is you're freeing a different trivia crack character. And then you can have an option to play, to play harder questions if you want to keep going. So it's just all about like coming back to the service again and again, instead of actually getting a new show or a new game, you know, and I, the questions were reasonably, you know, reasonable for trivia questions, I thought, but uh, it was so annoying. The voices and the like, – I didn't care about freeing the football from from <laughs> trivia dungeon, whatever. I was like, no, I'm like, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to spend my time doing this. And I'll spend my time doing 
just about anything. Yeah, I uh, I enjoyed the cat burglar one uh, a lot more actually. Funny you should mention Black Mirror. The the guy that uh, Charlie Brooker uh, who created Black Mirror he wrote I guess some of the questions and the scripts for Cat Burglar, which is basically trivia quest uh, except the interstitial stuff is like a Tom and Jerry kind of thing where the animation changes based on how you answer the questions. I'll play that. So it's a fun little diversion. I don't know. It's like one of the I, I'm a, I'm of two minds about this. On the one hand, maybe. This this is the, the future of entertainment. On the other hand, it sounds a little bit like interactive CD-ROM games. Oh, yeah. Like just very much like point and click. And yeah. yeah it yeah, sounds yeah. like something like they said was going to be big, but but wasn't, you know? Um, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe you know, the, the, the future is uh, choose your own adventure sitcoms. But uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit skeptical. <laughs> well, Netflix is still here as far as we know. But now it, it, it's... It's the glorious Netflix of the uh, of the teens and the early 2020s uh, is is now fading into the past. Jake, you wrote about it this week on Book and Film Globe. I'm going to have you back in about 30 seconds after this amazing interstitial music plays to talk about something else you wrote about this week. All right, sounds good. of course steve martin from a 1978 episode of saturday night live singing the king tut song if you were alive back then that that song was inescapable it was all over the radio and you might ask why are we talking about a 45 year old saturday night live skit uh starring steve martin and the answer is because king tut was labeled on the internet last weekend as as problematic as dated as not funny as Orientalist, perhaps, is, is a word I saw used. And, you know, I just feel like, you know, that was such a, a foundational comedy sketch and a foundational, like, wacky song from my youth. And I just I just found it bizarre that people were calling out Steve Martin, of all people. I mean, I don't think Steve Martin is about to get the Bill Cosby treatment. You know, he's, he's pretty wholesome banjo-playing uh, millionaire. And Jake Harris is back, and he wrote about this as well for us this week. Hello, Jake, again. Hello again. Um, I was not alive uh, in 1978 when this debuted. I don't even think my parents had started dating yet, but uh, was well aware of the song and then was uh, very surprised to see the reaction for it online this weekend. Yeah, well, you know, you're you're a, you're a pop culture om- omnivore like me, but I mean, that was it was a big hit. And, you know, it was it was, consi- you know, not only was that on a Saturday Night Live, but then he recorded it and he was performing it all over, performed it in his live show. And King Tut, the the Tutankhamun's uh, tomb, was touring around to museums all over the United States. It was a huge smash. It was like a, it was like a it was an archaeological find that had had never been equaled. Then people waited in line for hours to see the treasures of King Tut's tomb, and so you know Steve Martin was just making fun of the commercialization right. of yeah. history and of and of you know Egypt's treasures, and you know it was. And, and he, he was having a blast doing it. And, you know, the song is extremely funny and the dancing is extremely goofy. And I did not remember from watching the video, most of the singers and musicians and backup dancers in the video are black. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's, so it's not like it's not like a bunch, it's not like a bunch of uh, white people wearing blackface or anything. It's like it's like a very more inclusive than even Saturday Night Live was back in the day. So 
I, I just kind of was like wondering like what people found objectionable. And I guess it doesn't really matter because it's not like Steve Martin has had all his projects canceled and people have, you know, are boycotting him or whatever. He's, he's going to get away with it as no. he should. Um, <laughs> but you, but you pointed out that this is part of a larger cultural phenomenon wherein, you know, we're just like, we, we seem to have lost our ability to put culture into context. Yeah. And you're right that he's, you know, he's not getting canceled. There weren't really a lot of calls to, you know, quote unquote, cancel him for this joke. That's, you know, 40, more than 40 years old. Um, and thankfully there were a lot of people that, you know, popped in the comments to provide context and to show the monologue that he would try and do before every performance of this song to prove why he was making fun of people who would buy all the t-shirts and trinkets uh, for everything for this museum exhibit. But yeah, this thing was a fairly like benign example of this trend. You know, we see it a lot with like book bands uh, in addition to all the other stuff going on right now, especially in Texas, like stuff like Huck Finn, To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, Catcher in the Rye are still routinely get challenged and banned just because someone takes a look at it and it's like, I don't like that one passage or I don't like this character despite looking at, you know, how that informs the whole of the work instead of just taking it apart and looking at the little pieces of it and deciding you don't like that one piece. Um, and then even last year, we saw that with um, the Licorice Pizza and Last Duel uh, Twitter discourse around both of those movies, which I haven't seen Last Duel, but like there is like bones to pick with Licorice Pizza. You can make an argument like the the Japanese jokes in Licorice Pizza is a problem, right? But like the whole the age gap discourse with everything, that movie is very much trying to depict something and not endorse it. Yeah. Well, the thing about Licorice Pizza was that there was a character, a minor character in the movie, who had an, a Japanese wife. And he's and even though and even though he spoke Japanese, when he would speak English to her, it was in this sort of like very pigeon kind of half English yeah. way of talking. It was very condescending. And it was obviously based on someone that Paul Thomas Anderson had known. And one of, another one of the jokes is that it's a different wife every time he's in a scene. I can see why some people found that weird and offensive. But again, like, you know, it, you're, you're taking this thing and putting it into context. This wasn't like long duck dong territory. It's not like they didn't know what they were doing. And, you know, and you mentioned also in your, in your piece, uh, the French film Cuties, Yes. Which was, attacked, you know, the licorice pizza was attacked by the left. The French film Cuties was attacked by the right for promoting pedophilia and, you know, sexualizing preteen girls and all that. And, you know, I mean, I guess there may be some truth to that, but it was also a, just a depiction of the culture in which these girls come from. And a lot of that was was done by people who, you know, had just flat out never seen yes. any of the movies they were attacking, right? They were just seeing the, you know, clips that were circulating online and made a judgment call based off of 30 seconds. Correct. And then you also mentioned this week, you know, we talked about um, The Northman last week, the uh, Robert Eggers film, and uh, people are calling the left is calling The Northman into question because some white supremacists apparently identified with some of the cultural norms depicted in the film. The film that clearly, clearly, you know, did not endorse the disemboweling of one's enemies to get revenge or something. I mean, that was a, you know, I wouldn't say I'd call the North a social critique, but it was hardly a document of white supremacy. It just took place in a, in a land where everyone was white. No, yeah, and that that movie too. Um, I finally saw that one this week. Is very much uh, in the category of like this is a thing that happened, not that story per se, but like this idea and this uh, cultural uh, 
ideal is a thing that happened and then take that with what you will clearly uh media literacy and people being able to apply that interpretation of things is, is something that we all need to work on apparently. Yeah, exactly. Like we need to teach people to be able to understand works of art better. I mean, it's like people have lost their ability to interpret anything, any book, any movie, any TV show. Fortunately they have book and film globe. (laughs) (laughs) We'll provide the interpretation for if they would just read our articles for context, Jake, that's all you need to do. But yeah, but you know, and you, and you, but you, then you round it out, but you say, you know, the funny thing is that all of this happened the weekend before Elon Musk made a $44 billion bid to buy Twitter in an attempt to restore freedom of speech to the service. Yeah. I but, mean, one can hope. I don't, I don't think that's his main goal here, no. but you know, one, one can hope that the discourse improves from here. Hopefully. Cause there's, you know, can't, I don't know how it could get much worse. I say that and then it probably is going to, but uh, <laughs> hopefully it gets better. Famous last words. All right, Jake, thanks so much. You wrote a great piece about the King Tut controversy. Uh, I, you know, I know your parents hadn't started dating yet uh, when that (laughs) song hit, but um, you know, if they had, they would have been snuggled up at 11 PM on a, on a Sunday night, a Saturday night, watch, watching that. Are you trying to make me feel old? (laughs) My parents weren't even born yet when Steve Martin was on Saturday night live. They were they were alive. They were uh, probably like teenager, young teenagers. Oh my pre-teens. god! Look look <laughs> at me, and I'm just still sitting here. And I'm just watching King Tut on YouTube. Like, oh, I remember that. <laughs> I I love Lucy. All right, <laughs> Jake. Thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon. All right, thank you. Thanks, Jake Harris. How'd you get so funky? I don't know. We're Booking Film Globe. We're the funkiest website on the internet, or at least the best pop culture website on the internet. We're at www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. I'm Neil Pollack, your host, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for reading the site and for listening to the show. We couldn't do it without you. And we will talk to you soon. Most podcasts are awful. Most news is noise. What you need in your ears is real news. Narrated. You need Audio Hopper. Human narrations of the most compelling news, culture, and entertainment stories. You choose the topics and the publications. Audio Hopper gives you a commercial-free straight read of the story. Read by real voice actors, not annoying computer voice simulators. Get a variety of points of view and real news. Audio Hopper. Real news narrated. In the App Store.